Hey there, Michael Mahaney from the Pot of the Podcast. I've got a question for you. Do you identify as a dancer? If so, I have a group for you to check out. Dance Artists National Collective is the place for you. DANC, or DANK, is a growing group of freelance dance artists organizing in solidarity to create safe, equitable, and sustainable working conditions for dancers. Dank holds weekly community response meetings every Monday on Zoom, and they host tons of focus groups for all of the important issues facing dancers, such as wages, benefits, working conditions, equity, and negotiating. They even host watch parties and other fun events to help you connect more with your dance community. Head over to their website, danceartistsnationalcollective.org. That's danceartistsnationalcollective.org to learn more about Dank and to sign their solidarity statement. And for all the latest updates, follow Dank on Instagram at Dance Artists National Collective. Welcome back to a new episode of Pas de Deux, listeners. I'm your host, Clara Peterson. And today we're speaking with Devin Bandison. Devin is one of the most sought after personal and business coaches in the world. He works with Fortune 100 companies and people from all walks of life, including professional athletes, CEOs, salespeople, small business owners, filmmakers, producers, parents, and more. Devin was born and raised in New York City, where his love of sports and hard work resulted in him receiving a basketball scholarship to Belmont Abbey College in North Carolina. After graduating, he spent years working on the front lines in NYC with an organization responsible for developing behavioral health programs for youth, families, and first-time fathers in some of the toughest neighborhoods throughout the city. As director of this organization, he was responsible for the clinical and leadership development of social workers, psychiatrists, and managers. He now serves as the director of children's services for the Community Mental Health Services Division, in addition to running his coaching company and keeping up with numerous coaching and speaking engagements. Devin holds a BA in psychology and a master's degree in public administration. And you'll notice that Devin is, I think, the first guest on the Pot of the Podcast who is not directly involved in dance. We invited Devin to join us today because he has, a, he has long been a leader in opening up and moderating anti-racism conversations with diverse groups of people. We've sought out a conversation with him now because, first of all, we feel that in our role as discussion leaders, seeking guests from diverse backgrounds, it's important that we educate ourselves and our listeners uh, just on how best to approach conversations about race or even conversations that involve people of different races. And secondly, starting this month, Padada will be making an effort to schedule interviews focused specifically on racial justice in the dance world. We're kicking off this racial justice work with a series called The Lab with Antoine Byers, hosted by the wonderful Antoine Byers, who also joins us today. So welcome, Antoine, and welcome, Devin. 
<laughs> Thanks for being here, everyone. Thank you. What a long intro. And, and, and just really <laughs> quick for your uh, community, not only am I not in dance, I, I embarrassingly, embarrassingly uh, have done the same two-step uh, for about 25 years wherever I do dance. <laughs> but, but I've perfected the two-step. It's pretty good. But I'm open to learning from you guys. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you like your two-step? Do you feel I love like it. I love it. I, I mean, you know, you do the same thing for all those years. You got to get good at it. So at least I'm pretty good at the two-step. <laughs> I think we could turn that into a conceptual piece where you just do it over and over, endurance all night. I love it. Bring it on. Pay to see it. Sold out. <laughs> a lot yes. of conceptual work going on. And <laughs> the point of dance is that you love it, as we have emphasized on this podcast numerous times. So love your two-step. Yeah, it's, 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 I love it. And I love what you, you all are up to in your community. I think that, you know, I just want to acknowledge all of you and, and not only for what you do on a regular basis, but the fact that you're bringing this conversation into your community just says a lot of who you are in the world and, and what you're up to. So I'm just inspired by all of you and, and I'm happy to be on the on the call. Thank you, Devin. Thank you, Devin. Feeling is mutual. Well, to, to kick off, um, let's dive right in. And Devin, can you tell us about your recent co-creating the bridge sessions that you hosted on Zoom um, to give everyone a little background of where we're coming from? Um, maybe help us understand your initial goal for those sessions and how you feel about the progress that was made by participants? Yeah, it was a great thing that came, and I gotta back up a little and, and probably give you the, the backstory of, of how it yeah. came about. And, um, you know, this year there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor, um, all the way um, down to the most recent incidents. And, and this isn't a new conversation, right? This isn't a new conversation about institutional racism and inherent bias. And, uh, you know, when, when these things started bubbling to the surface, uh, it really, you know, it was one of those things that I put together that just felt natural. It was like I woke up, it, didn't, it wasn't something that I felt was any work. It was because I've been in this conversation all my life. And, and so the reason why I've been in this conversation all my life is as considered a black man in this country, you know, I grew up uh, interesting enough from a black father and a white mother. And I often joke that I came out looking Latino, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, early, early on, you know, it was always a conversation of colorism and black enough here, white enough here. Mm -hmm. and, and so this isn't new for me. And I remember my mom, you know, at, 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 you know, in my teenage years, and, and she always tried to kind of say, hey, I, I tried not to see race. And I remember having the conversation with my mom early on and saying, mom, but you don't know how it feels when you walk down the street and someone's clutching their purse, or when you go into a store and people are following you. And at that moment, my mom realized that she, she had the best intentions not to see race, but by not seeing race, it was actually um, perpetuating something that wasn't helping the conversation. And from that point on, my mom became like, you know, um, an investigator, right? Like always just asking questions and inquiry. And, and that's how I got into kind of my coaching practice because I realized the power of asking really great questions. So, so when this happened this year, I woke up and I, I was like, this is a conversation that's just natural. 
um, you know, I, I'm someone who kind of relates in very different worlds. You know, I'm just as comfortable, you know, growing up in, in Jamaica, Queens, as in a C-suite executive's office. Uh, black, white, all different colors, all different socio and economic backgrounds. So, so it felt natural. And I created this weekly conversation. It was a four-week, uh, and then we had a, a recap of a fifth-week conversation called Co-Creating the Bridge. And the goal was to bring people together from all walks of life to really have an open discussion of what it meant to be, what, what it means, racism means to them and institutional racism and inherent bias. And, um, you know, we ended up, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't market it. I just told people this is what's happening. And we ended up getting like 600 people um, to attend these sessions. And it, it really That's took nice. off. And um, it was really powerful. We, we talked about people's experiences. And, and one of the things, Clara, I think is important is that nobody, not one person has all the answers. I think that the important thing about this discussion is that we're in an open inquiry. That if we start asking better questions, if we start creating a safe space where people can disagree, where people can have different voting, right? like people vote for one person, that they're not excluded from the conversation. People have grown up and have some you know, questions, they're not excluded. And, and what I found was this, this, this discussion has never really been moved forward in the most powerful way because people are fearful. They're fearful they'll be judged. They're fearful that they, they can't ask the question um, that they really want to because they'll be looked at as racist. So I used to start every one of these conversations with what is the question or what is the comment that you want to make, but up until this point, you've been scared to make. And that's opened the door for this amazing discussion from people from all over. And I think you guys were part of it a couple of weeks. And, um, and it really has led to a lot of shifts um, and changes because the other thing that kind of limits people is they think they need to change the world and they have to do this grand thing. And what I told them was, what is your stone in the bridge? Just one little stone. Not, not, you don't have to change the world, but what's the one little stone? Meaning, you know, a stone is different and it could change over time. So somebody's stone could be protesting. Someone's stone to, could be trying to change um, policy. Someone's stone could just simply be a conversation with their children that they've never had. And as a result of the, the, the four or five weeks, um, we've had some amazing outcomes of like what the people are up to in the world and how they're changing it. So I'm very proud of, of the work we've been doing. That's amazing. Um, and as someone who was a witness participant and uh, for our listeners and viewers, I'm Jessica Williams. <laughs> um, but as a witness to a couple of weeks of this call that you held, um, I really appreciate that what you're doing is world building. And that really ties together with your concept of um, what is your stone in building the bridge. And I thought that was such an amazing way to frame everything. Because while everyone in the call was having very difficult conversations, there is always this feeling of like, oh, this is so big. This is bigger than me. And I've had missteps in the past. And I'm reckoning with that. But then on top of that, how do you then move forward? And I really appreciate your approach to honoring dissensus and not focusing on consensus building. And that is so important in world building. Um, but I really appreciate your approach and thought it was 
effective, enlightening, and it just added um, to everyone's ability to add so much to the conversation. Yeah, it's such a good point. And thank you for contributing too, Jessica, to the conversation. You know, you know that's the thing that, that keeps people stuck sometimes is the fact that it feels so big that they don't know where to start. And the concept of the little stone was like, think about it. If we just committed 1%, like 1% to make a change every day in about three and a half months, it would be 100 days, you'd be 100% further along than you are today. And that's a different way of approaching something than we're normally like, I'm fired up, I'm going to change it all tomorrow. And then when you hit, you know, a roadblock, we're back to square one. So we were really looking at how do we just move it a little each day. And, and, and as we look back, it's amazing what was created. And the other thing that I love that you said, Jessica, I agree, is like, the census is like, how do we disagree without being disagreeable? How do we bring people around who have different points of view, who, who we may not even like their point of view, but can we create a space where that's okay? That like, we can disagree and, and not be disagreeable. Yeah. We don't live in a space like that right now. You know, we don't have that space. We don't practice that muscle of disagreeing, but not being disagreeable. So I love that you make that distinction. Yeah, absolutely, Antoine. Yeah, and where that also shows up is um, cancel culture. And now mm -hmm. there's all these viral videos going around where Karen's doing something bad again. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's important to witness and actually show what's, what's happening in the world. Um, Sure. It's, very, it's very interesting how dissensus is often shut down in a lot of conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that historically has been where we've stopped. So what happens is we move some stuff forward, but then once it becomes too uncomfortable, people take their ball and go home. Yeah. Right. Like, like there's some mm -hmm. unconscious thought that this shouldn't be uncomfortable. And if we start building the muscle of like, can we start getting comfortable being uncomfortable? Then I think that that is where stuff starts to change in this world. I love that. Comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like comfortable being awkward. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and because, because if we don't allow for that, then every time someone's, this is a, a big conversation. It's about, you know, years and institutions that have been built a certain way so that the game that is played is rigged, right? And, and only until we I identify that the game is rigged and we have the people who help rig the game, help like create a new one with us, it, it's the only way it's gonna change. It's not gonna change by just a certain group of people saying this isn't right. We need actually the people who know that the game is rigged and we're part of rigging the game to be part of the change. And that's why consensus building and bringing people into the conversation is important. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah. That's interesting because I honestly feel like a lot of people in our generation, uh, liberal, progressive people for the most part, kind of feel like we need to wait for some of the old guard to die out and then just like get new people in there with more <laughs> progressive thoughts. How do you get there? How do you build consensus or get that kind of change for someone who, from someone who's like deeply complicit in the system, you know, like some of these senators, these assholes who are just like voting down everything useful. Are, are, they, are they just like not the target? I mean, how? Yeah. And I think um, where I connect with your question, Clara, and um, what I witnessed in the co-creating the bridge series that Devin 
um, coordinated is there were some questions like, how do you have these conversations with your family members or with yeah. other people with um, within the political divide? And I thought um, Devin's approach and response was really interesting in that it focused on, you know, when you start a conversation with wanting to change someone's mind, that comes from an interesting place. And I am, um, I took that um, to heart because I think I often enter political conversations or conversations about race with, well, let me tell you something. Um, so I'm curious, like, what do you, what you think of all of that, Devin? Yeah, I, I think you said it wonderfully. And, and because you were, you know, part of the conversation, you know, I used to joke, like, if there's two people, the exact same, there's no use for one of them. Like, right, like, if you got two of the exact same people, That's what's the difference with the other, right? So the mm -hmm. fact that there's differing opinions, you know, are, are, is actually a great place. That's what makes our country and, and our world so diverse. So like Jessica said, can we go into, most people go into conversations, and first of all, they don't even listen. They're listening to what they want to say. So while someone's talking, they're in their head trying to see what they want to get a across. Secondly, um, they're, they're listening, trying to hear from a place of right, wrong. So literally, we're listening to someone, we're saying, that's right, that's wrong, that's good, that's bad. And what we tried to recreate and co-create in the bridge is a different way of listening. Can we listen from a place of like neutrality of like, I may not agree, it may not be what I believe, but can I allow for them to believe what they believe? And, and, is, and, and that's okay. We had a guy who, you know, we talked about experiences of people, you know, we had a principal in there, a black principal who talked about his experience of getting pulled over by police and brutality. And, and we had a guy in there who was a white man, older white man, who said, um, he, he, he raised his hand, he was uncomfortable and he said, listen, listening, I have been unconsciously unaware of the pain that I hear on this call. And I can see where my bias, like I've been racist, I'm a racist. And the guy was on the call, broke down crying and said, and I'm no longer okay with that. And see, that breakthrough would never have happened if he was judged for being on the call, if he didn't feel comfortable. And, the, and that conversation moved so much, so, so many people on that call, that like it opened up other people to say, hey, I got family members who are racist. I have, and, and how do I have these conversations? And, and the way to have it, I, I believe, is to really come from a place of, of inquiry, like, like really questioning, really asking and not trying to prove your point because we think we know way more than we actually do. We, we think we got this thing called knowledge of the, of the world um, down. And there's so much more to learn. And if we're open for it, I think that great things can happen. And, and, and clarity, clarity, your point, we have to allow for this space of differing opinions and things we actually don't like. Um, you know, I go to the gym. I don't like lifting weights all the time. Like, I don't, I don't like, like, really, like, I would rather just chill on, like, a massage chair. But, but I don't like, but I understand that like when I get comfortable being uncomfortable, that I, there's a breakthrough that happens, that there's a transformation that happens if I stay in the game. And that's what we're really trying to create here. 
I like that. It's like almost like you're abandoning the idea of like, well, these are the problem people who I have to change their mind. And you're just trying to open up the space around you as much as you can. Yeah. Listen and what are you going to do? You go. Trying to like eliminate everyone who you don't like or who says something you don't like. It's like, these days, I mean, I think on the Trump side, it's like, sure. Yeah. But <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. We can't. Right. Yeah. But, but the problem with that, from my perspective, is if we don't draw, there's people on that side who have legit reasons why they believe what they believe. They, they're yep. not all the same, right? Like yeah, I know people right. who, who vote for Trump, who, you know, I would say are good people who want change in the world, but like they just see the world different. And if we don't include people in the conversation yeah. that we don't agree, we'll only get half of the thing solved. And we need, we need, what we're talking about here is what it means to be human, like transforming what it means to be a human being on this planet. And that's a big undertaking. And for you yeah. to take that on, you need everybody. And some yeah. people won't be involved, just they don't want to, but you have to create the space where there's diversity in that. And I think also to your point, what really resonates for me, when you're listening, when you're really listening to someone, you're also choosing your language differently because you're meeting somewhere, someone where they are. And that is a very important step to change, whether that be clinical change or change on ideas. And um, I think where this came up for me, I mean, it comes up almost every day, but um, like when defund the police um, first became mainstream, my first initial thought was like, oh my God, yes, it's gone mainstream. But then my second thought was, no, 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 change the words, change the words. Because I was just thinking about my conservative family from Ohio and how they responded. And they actually already reached out to me to have conversations about it. And I approached them with language that I knew they would appreciate. And in the end, it was um, a good conversation. But I think when you're really listening, you're not just using the same language you would use with everyone. And um, I think it's also important. So, so good, Jessica. I mean, <laughs> I have a saying that your words create your world. Like literally words create your world, right? Think about it. Like Antoine's down there. If there was four men next to Antoine, I didn't know his name. I wouldn't know he's an Antoine. The reason why he's an Antoine is someone gave a word and enough people agreed. And if Antoine tomorrow said, I'm changing my name to Muhammad Ali, he created a new world and that would be his name, right? So think about it. Words create worlds. Segregation, desegregation. Marry, divorce. And, and so messaging is important. Defund the police while people who are behind the scenes may know what it means. When you're talking about a whole conservative or other parts of the country, that those that languaging and that message is very scary to hear for people because they think about defunding the police as you're taking police away and when I'm in trouble I'll I won't be able to get a police officer to save me, and and I think that that's where people they get ahead of themselves and don't aren't as thoughtful of how things will be received because what they're really talking about is this thing that you and I know Jessica very well is called social determinants of health. There's mm -hmm. these areas in life that you can almost predict that people are gonna have opportunities to have a successful life or, or struggle. And it's these areas of education, housing, safety in your community, job opportunities, 
these things, these social determinants of health is what initially we, we were talk, what people were talking about when they said it wasn't really defunding the police. It was reallocating funds to go into these four or five areas of social determinants of health. But instead mm -hmm. of saying that, people just heard defunding the police, which made everyone go to their corners yeah. and say, see, I, we can't even meet in the middle. So we yeah. got to find a way to bring people together through language. Our language is how we can bring people together. It creates a world. Yeah, it is world building. <laughs> um, well, I do want to ask, um, you know, in light of our overall purpose here and the fact that we're uh, a podcast or a conversation-based medium, um, I am curious, do you have any advice, um, Devin, for... I guess to start with maybe just general parameters or guidelines um, that anyone of any race should be aware of when they're approaching a direct conversation about race and about racial justice and anti-racism um, and kind of connected to that. Are there times when a direct conversation or a direct question is not the right approach? How do we find that balance? Well, first of all, tune in to you guys and tune into the lab with my guy Antoine over there. <laughs> conversation. Yes. You know, I think come through. That, that's right. <laughs> come through. I think, you know, because I think conversations like this is important. It gives people language to be able to articulate what they're feeling, right? And and a lot of times, because it's been behind the scenes so much in people's minds, you know, people are worried about how it's going to come across and how they're going to be. Um, um, received right so a couple of parameters for me is like this conversation is always permission based right like it may not be the time so so i want to ask people is it is it are you open to having a conversation around this and when i ask that i let them know like yes or no are perfectly fine like most people ask questions hey you want to talk about this and they're like no and then people it go, they still talk about it anyway. So you got to really be sincere about really asking permission. Yes, no, or make a counter offer. Like maybe we can discuss this another time. Would that be more appropriate? Yes. So one, get off of your agenda and make the people in front of you the agenda. Like they're like really create a space where it's permission based. Two, for me, go into the conversation in like Inspector Gadget, well, Inspector Clouseau, maybe, no, Inspector mm -hmm. Gadget, that, you know, I like, it's, that was my guy, but um, like really <laughs> in inquiry, like, like in inquiry, like asking a question, not to align it with what you think is true, but really exactly. asking a question to try to hear something and, and something different, be open to, to something different. And then also, I think, Clara, what's important is listening from a place of neutrality, not listening from right or wrong, good or bad, because that's all a lens, right, wrong, good, bad is all a lens. And what it does is it limits our ability to expand, you know, our own uh, appreciation, our own knowledge. And, and if you don't allow things that you don't agree with or make you uncomfortable in, you're just going to stay in your own box. Um, and I do think that that's important, like Jessica was talking about, to really um, have the patience to be able to speak to people like, you know, people in your family who may be older, who maybe have more ingrained in them. And, and for you to go at them and trying to change them into, you know, a, you know, what you believe 
is probably not the best approach. It's really to try to have an inquiry back and forth so you can learn from them, they can learn from you, so they don't feel like they're being spoken at, um, but they're being spoken with. And, and think about it, right? You ever have a teacher <clears throat> in school who came in front of the class and they were telling you, like they acted like they knew it all, right? Or, or they were telling you their way was the way? Did, like, how did you connect with that person, yeah. right? We hardly did. But someone who opened the discussion said, hey, I'd like to learn from you and, 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 and hear from you, um, you were probably more likely to connect with and be able to learn from. So, yeah. And there is some research in deep canvassing efforts um, that show if you're doing some kind of like political canvassing as one example, and you actually listen to the person who you're canvassing and you let them speak like a large majority of the time, um, and when they feel heard, then they're willing, they will actually ask you your views, not all the time, but um, they're more willing to listen to what you are going to say, um, which I find interesting. But I do also find it difficult. I have my moments, you know, as compassionate as I try to be, because you have to build that compassion for yourself when you're building a bias awareness practice. Um, I have moments where I'm just like, oh my God, I cannot believe they still think that. Or, you know, they, there's triggers there. And um, I, I find I have to be in a place of self-care and I have to be in a good place before I can have these conversations with certain people. Um, and that doesn't mean I'm, I'm avoiding the conversation, but I think there's, there's gonna be a lot of discomfort. I mean, I think that is also very much part of the process and leaning into that discomfort. Can I add to that? Oh, please. And, and so, Jessica, I think that your point is so well taken because we may not listen to people, like say you say, man, Devin said, I'm gonna try to not listen from right or wrong, good or bad, but we do it with ourselves. So mm -hmm. sometimes you have a judgment of people and then the judgment becomes of yourself of like, am I wrong for doing that? Am I right for doing that? And you gotta allow for yourself to have that human experience too, right? Like, like we're never ever gonna get this thing down. That's what I tell people. What it is, is it's the practice. You know, right. I used to like a group um, from ATL, um, you know, the ATLians, the ATLian, you remember that album? Yeah, uh, Outcast. Outcast, right? Yeah. And, and, and there was a song where they said, never ever, ever, ever. And when I talk about this conversation, it's like, <laughs> You're never, ever, 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 ever going to get it. But what we're going to do is we're building a practice. We're practicing our way through. Practice doesn't make perfect, but practice makes progress. And yeah. we have to allow ourselves to fall short, to be in judgment sometimes, like, like to, to, to have that human experience because it will just allow us to connect with other people when they fall short, when they have their own judgments, when they come across a certain way. And, and that's what we have to connect with people, not showing people how much we know and how perfect we are, but showing how inspiring we are by how we deal with our imperfections, because we all have imperfections. That's so real. And, you know, in a lot of the work I'm doing right now, I'm establishing a new organization for black dancers to come together. And I'm thinking about a lot of the stuff you said. and. This reminds me of some work that I've been reading by Tima Okun, and um, 
talking about white supremacy culture and how it shows up in our spaces. And I love the example you gave about the classroom and like a different teacher and how we respond to those different types of teaching. And I think it's really important for us to understand that those are ways that white supremacy culture shows up in our spaces, like the idea of perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word. These are all ways that um, that shows up in our spaces. And some other things that I would offer as I develop um, kind of some community guidelines um, for cultivating as much of a safe space as possible, because I love what you said, it's not possible to ever create 100% of a safe space. Uh, but I think it's important for us to all work towards that. Um, but also recognizing that intent doesn't always equal impact and recognizing or entering conversations, trying to assume that the other person means good and means well. Um, but also recognizing that every time we mean something, it doesn't always come across that way. Um, and then also understanding, I love what you said about um, both and versus either or thinking um, and how limiting that can be. Um, and I also think it's really important, I try to share with people to speak from their own experience, um, to make sure that they're not telling back someone their own oppression to their face. Um, so I love all the things you shared, but just sharing some of the things that I'm trying to take into my practice that kind of uh, fit into that world as well. So thank you for dropping all those gems. <laughs> you got it, Antoine. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, work. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I just thought that was so interesting. You said worship of the written word. I hadn't mm -hmm. realized that was kind of an ingrained part of like white supremacy, but it makes sense because, you know, oppression has often been tied up with illiteracy, you know, holding mm -hmm. people back from education. Yeah. yeah. And that's why spoken word, that's why we actually can create a new world based on our word of what we're creating. And that's what I mean by all words create our world, not the written world, because history is actually how black community has always looked at it, or a lot of the black community was his story. That's how we looked at history. That's his story in that written word, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so like, we're creating a new way to kind of look at the world and how we relate um, by our, our words, not our, mm -hmm. not the written word. Yeah, and everyone doesn't learn or prosper in every situation. So, you know, I know even in um, the work that I'm doing with Dance Artists National Collective, we're reimagining the way that we give out information. Does the email a super long email, is that the best way that everyone can receive information? Is an agenda meeting every Monday from 1 to 2.30, is that really the most accessible meeting mm -hmm. format for everyone? Does everyone learn the best in that situation? Does everyone receive information the best in that way? So I think that's all important. Um, and even like thinking about how once we say something, we're not allowed to like change our mind. Or, you know, I think that comes up a lot as well. So I think that's a part of it too. And I love this um, emphasis you put on storytelling, Devin, because I think that um, in a lot of cultures, that is the way that information is passed down. And I also think that, you know, what's great about this and as well as the upcoming series is that we're continuing to have those conversations, continuing to tell those stories that often aren't told um, because they don't have the platform or because their way of storytelling doesn't fit into um, our system's preferred way of receiving information. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, you said it very well. And, and one thing I like to point out, and, you know, what's a good podcast without some controversy? But like, um, you know, there's a difference between information and transformation, 
right? And, and what often occurs, and people come from a good place, and I, my, my white sisters and brothers, I, there's a thing called white guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's so much guilt that's built in that yeah. we come, they come from this place. And it reminds me of in the movie Malcolm X, there was a white woman who, and people were so offended by this point. And she was like, I'm a believer in the cause and, and you know, I want to help and how can I help? And Malcolm X looked at her and says, you can't. And, and it wasn't that white people can't. He knew she was coming from this place of white guilt. And what we need to do is have white people, our sisters and brothers, um, come in and not, you don't need to be guilty for things that happened years ago or last week. We need you to be kind of um, co-creators in this thing, like to be partners in this thing rather than like you have to make up for years of oppression because that really is going to keep us in, 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 um, in a cycle. Right. So we want you to be and, and and to be open that your black friends aren't responsible for educating you. Right. Like like I have some people we call it co-create what's your your rock. And I got some people who said, Devin, I'm tired of carrying the rocks, man. Like I've been carrying these rocks all my lives. So what we need you guys to do is also get on the court. Like what I say is a basketball term or like on the court rather than in the stands. And you can read a lot and you could read White Fragility. You could do all this stuff, which is great. But what's better than that what's, what is taking that information and turning into real little action, transformation, as small as a conversation you'd never have before or a podcast interview that you've never, like you guys are doing, or, you know, creating um, more space in the community to move some policy forward. Whatever it is, we want to move it from like information to transformation, to real live change that we see in our lives. That's great. And I think um, a lot of questions that are coming up recently with what you speak about information to transformation is um, now a lot of institutions, um, nonprofit organizations, corporations, all kinds of institutions, arts organizations, they know um, now is the time to look at policies and ask that question, where does racism um, exist here? And um, I I think now everyone's sort of in this collective struggle, like (laughs) how do we do that? And um, I know a lot of consultants are being used in this space. Um, So yeah, I don't even know what my question is here, but. (laughs) Well, you didn't get me on here to like, um, just agree with everything in the status quo. So so there's a thing going on. I've been invited by organizations to do this thing called D&I, diversity Mm -hmm. and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Now, and I've turned it down um, every time because this is the conversation I'm having with people. That Mm -hmm. these one-time, one-off trainings will not help they won't because this is an ongoing conversation so if you want to bring me in for instance to the organization what i tell them is i will do a one or two day thing but this has to be built in to a system continually that there's conversations happening continually monthly quarterly there's coaching along the way something so this isn't just the flavor of the month and 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 that's the danger here the danger is that people are all, you know, they get all in an uproar and that we're protesting and, and they, they see on TV the, the injustices. And, and then once that dies down, they're no longer really on the court. It, it, it's gone. So what we, we need this to be more of a sustainable 
1% a day? How do we move it forward each day? Ask yourself the question, how am I contributing to the change today? What is my 1% that I'm going to move this conversation forward in my own life? And if we just took the individual responsibility of moving it forward 1% each day, it will never, it will be sustainable. We'll get momentum. We'll be ready for conversations. And I think that that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. Yeah, and I agree because a lot of this um, is so engraved in everything we do. So you can't fix 400 plus years of bullshit with like one or two days of a workshop. Um, this anti-blackness and racism is engraved and sewn into a lot of the systems that we all participate in. So we have to continuously work at it. And I love that you say that. And I also saw in one of your interviews, you said, does your audio match your video? And I love that, um, especially thinking of a lot of our um, organizations and dance companies right now, we're seeing all the audio, we're seeing all the Instagram and the Facebooks and tweets and everything. Um, but what about the video, right? What are you gonna do after that? Um, and this is continuous work. So I love that you made that distinction for sure. Does your words match your actions? Does your audio match your video? If I had a, a camera that was secretly following you through the day, what would that show me? Would it show me all that stuff that you're putting on Instagram or would it show me a different mm -hmm. picture? Not that we're looking at you to be perfect, but like, can your audio match your video? Can your words, mm -hmm. I love that you, you did your research, my man. <laughs> well, I love that. So I heard that, I was like, let me write that down. That was so good, you know? <laughs> Yeah. That's why we love Antoine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hyper prepared. And it's real. We're all watching it happen. You know, um, I started this new organization. I'm starting off of what I call the Blackout Tuesday on Instagram when I felt like the world was telling us to be quiet. But the last thing I wanted to do was be quiet. I had so much to say. Um, so watching all of these people post and blackout their screens, I'm like, okay, that's the audio to me. Yep. But where's the video? You know, where's that next step? What are you doing on this day off? You know, and then every day after this. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. it's such a good point, Antoine. And, and that's why giving people permission to just pick a stone in the bridge and understanding that it, there's no stone too little. And over time, your stone can change. So, so sometimes people stone in this is it's such a new conversation that they're like, I don't know yet, I, I'm just, I just need to learn more. And that's okay. And then some mm -hmm. people are like, all right, I learned and now I wanna be in different conversations. And then some people are like, I wanna change policy. Some people, you know, so we have people in co-creating the bridge who um, are, are now influencing politicians and policy around race. Mm -hmm. We had other people who are creating children's like um, series of, of leadership and books around race. Um, we, we have people who are having conversations with their conservative, historically racist parents and family members around race mm -hmm. who are teaching their children different. I mean, these are all, we have people protesting. Well, I mean, these are all super important. We have people who recreated their whole business model. They had a, a company and they restructured their whole business model to incorporate this as an ongoing conversation okay. so, so everything no matter what you choose is important don't think yeah. it's too little or too big and i think that that's the permission that we want to and like you said antoine as long as you're moving something forward like you're not mm -hmm. just talking and, and it looks good but like can you move something forward each day mm -hmm.
Uh, one thing I did want to um, talk about at some point to drill down a little further from what I asked before about approaching these conversations um, is how specifically we as white women who have hosted the pod podcast for a long time um, can think about going into conversations, whether they're specifically about racial justice in dance or not, or just an interview with um, a black dancer or a person of color or another minority. What should we be keeping in mind as we're approaching those conversations? That said, um, Antoine is hosting the meat of our upcoming series about racial justice in dance. So Antoine, if you want to interject and ask something first, feel free. Um, but I just wanted to put out there okay. at some point, I'd love to circle back for us to kind of take something with us as we go forward longer term. Um, yeah, so real quick, um, our new series starting very soon is The Lab, which stands for Listening, Learning, and Building. And that's a space where we create space to share Black stories in the dance world and dissect how white supremacy shows up in our dance spaces, as well as dream of ways in which we can move forward to a dance world that is safe for all of us to access, participate in, and thrive. So these are a lot of the things that we're talking about today are a lot of the topics that we're going to be discussing um, in the future episodes of the podcast. So some issues we've talked about or like representation which was which is a big one um, and how we see a lot of dancers on billboards but not in the boardrooms um, and we need represent representation throughout um, so not just in our classrooms which I know we hear a lot about um, but as in our dance companies uh, choreographers directors but also our staff uh, we need uh, makeup artists of color hair artists of colors to work with those um, artists of color. Um, we also hear about point shoes and um, tights and all of that. So that representation shows up there. If you have a, a pair of tights called skin or flesh and you only sell one color of those tights, what does that mean? What are you telling your dancers, your black dancers, your dancers of color who are coming into your store trying to enter this field? Same thing with leader, leadership positions and boardrooms. Um, I love, Devin, that you talked about colorism, and I think that shows up a lot, um, as well as tokenism. Um, and I love what you said. Um, I experienced this a lot, not being Black enough for Black spaces, but also not being white enough for white spaces. I think that shows up a lot. And I think that um, this competition between uh, minorities is something that is systemically designed to pin us against each other. And there's usually only one spot for a Black person or a person of color. And we I often hear that black people shouldn't be against each other, black people shouldn't be in comp competition with each other, and that we all can eat. And I agree with that, but I think that it's important for us to recognize that within this system, that doesn't always happen. There's usually only one spot for a black person or a person of color. Um, so this system is created for us to take each other out uh, to make it easier for those at the top. Um, and also the way that our culture is appropriated, um, the cultures of black and brown people, how our stories, we just talked about this, our stories, our dances and music can be put on stage, but many of us are not allowed to tell our stories or dance around dances on those same stages, um, at least not without the help of white people in power, which we've also talked about a little bit. Um, so I think that all of these things are things that we're going to discuss um, later on in the podcast. Um, but yeah, just a little sneak peek. <laughs> Amazing. What do you guys each think? Because I keep hearing two opposite things at different times about like, um, obviously, white people have to be involved, you know, we have to change, right? And then, and so sometimes I feel like the message is we should do the majority of the work. And then sometimes I feel like the message is we should step back because we don't understand and haven't been through the experience, you know, to, to guide us in the right direction. Where should we land on this? From I'm really curious to hear from both of you. 
Yeah, I, I don't think I'm not. Now is not the time for anyone to step back, and and it's like so for me, it's it's you got to step up, right? And you can't expect, you know, black people have been carrying these stones, like I said, for a long time. And there's some black people who are just like, I'm tired. Like, you know, we see another march, we're tired of marching. We're, we're tired of protesting. And, mm -hmm. and so what we need is the people who were part of rigging the game to, to help create a new game. So I think mm -hmm. that white people have to do their work and do their homework and, and be okay with, you know, and asking, a black friend, like I have a friend who always asks me, she's like, is this cool for me to ask you now? And it's okay for you like not to be able to want to talk about this with me. And that's important because, you know, that's part of it, this expectation that we have to educate white people. And I think that if you guys, you know, if white people and our white brothers and sisters did the work and then brought it back and said, hey, is this a good time to, you know, ask you some questions and, how can we contribute? I think that's a whole different way than like either just stepping back or just, you know, expecting us to lead and tell you which way to go. Um, because this is built in, like Antoine said, this, this is institutional, you know, this is in every asset of, you know, um, policing, it's in every aspect of the court system, it's in every aspect of the communities, you know, and, and when he talked about colorism, like it, it's always been white has been right. Yellow is mellow, you know, like every as you got on and the darker the hue, the more um, scary it was for for white, the white community. And so, you know, and that was all articulated in the Willie Lynch papers. So so there was things that have been historically built into our Constitution, to our laws that you know slavery is still in there you know three-fifths of a human being is still in there so so like you know like so we, we need see it yeah we and you see it so so like i think to your point and your question clara the fact that you're asking how is a great start the second is do you that we need our white brothers and sisters to do their homework and then come back and and be okay with if they ask their friends like hey, can you tell me about this? Be okay with them saying, I don't want to tell you about this right now. And, yeah. and not letting that be the door that shuts you down from continuing to move forward. Because mm -hmm. there'll be other people who are ready to bring you on and say, hey, yeah, sit down, ask me whatever you want, or you know, I'm down for this. But we have to allow all of that because people have different ways in which they're addressing this and not all is the same way. Yeah, I agree 100% with what Devin said, um, 1,000%. Um, I love what you said about the three-fifths, though, because that's something we still experience today. I mean, look at our dance classrooms. Look at Black people in leadership mm. position. That's where it shows up. That's that three-fifths. Uh, we don't have the same access to power, so I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, yeah. And then just one thing to add, I think, like I said, Devin summed it up great, but I think um, we have to just all remember our privilege in these conversations. And I think that's the mm -hmm. difference. And that's the factor is that um, white people usually have uh, more privilege to have certain conversations, um, act in a certain way based on safety, um, do certain things within this movement that um, a lot of our black brothers and sisters and um, people of color and trans brothers and sisters or uh, folks with disability 
these people don't always have um, the same access. So I think that's the important part to remember is that we have to let black people and people of color tell their stories, just like Devin said, and be there ready and willing to listen, but also just understand our privilege um, and what power we actually have. And then from there decide what our role should be in this situation. But I agree, no one should be stepping back. And I think that if anyone has heard that, I think that maybe again, language and communication, maybe that wasn't communicated the same way. Um, maybe a person of color felt like their toes were stepped on or that someone else was trying to tell their story. Um, but I think as far as the work and the activism, it's, it, we're all a part of it, you know? Yeah. and it requires all of our hands to fix it. Um, all of our hands were here messing it up. Um, some of us by choice and some of us not, but we're all a part of it. Um, so we all have to be a part of it. And that goes with the learning too. In this conversation, I've learned a lot. And I, I've been doing anti-racism work as a black person who thought I was the you know anti-racism work of this country, but there's still so much to learn for all of us. So I think, um, the same thing that we kind of carry in all of the work we do, there's always so much more to learn and almost always so much more to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, well said. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, just to add to what Antoine's saying is like, I hear a lot of how bad things are, right? And, and how the country is this and that. But like, we have an opportunity here like no other time. Like, mm -hmm. like we, are, we are creating, I got chills that actually we're having this conversation on the call and like Antoine said of like moving this forward and having two white women and, and a black man and another black man and, and experiencing this, like we are the new history books. We are rewriting history. Like, and the question is like, what are we gonna tell our children and our grandchildren? Like when this time came for us to step up and really make a difference, what were you doing? Were you on the sidelines or were you really about like change? Did you just want to be heard and, and be seen on Instagram as someone doing it? Or were you really invested in the change? And, and for me, that's what this is about. And you can't, for me, I can't get there by, by putting people in boxes, judging people and not allowing for anyone who wants to come, no matter who they vote for, no matter how they look at things to come along because we need everyone. This is not going to be a certain group that's going to change everything. It's going to be more conversations like this that get bigger and bigger and bigger and more inclusive. Mm -hmm. Because you can't deal with exclusion. You can't deal with racism by excluding people from the, the solution because you're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, you're doing the same thing. It's following the same model that is the mm -hmm. systemic problem. That's, that's so we always look at an old model to try to recreate. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about here is a brand yeah. new model. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the only thing, sorry, real quick. That's the only thing we haven't done. I say this all the time. We've done band-aids, we've done addendums, we've done amendments, we've done everything to fix all of these issues. But then the one thing that we haven't done is burn this sucker down and start from the top. Um, and we're also afraid of that, right? We're also afraid of uncovering all of that history, that nasty, dirty, disgusting history that we all have. Um, but that's the one thing, Devin, I love that you said that. That's one thing we haven't done, is trying starting this whole thing over. And it's going to take us a while because a lot of us are afraid of that. We find comfort in this system that serves none of us, really, except for maybe a few of us at the top, like 20 people, literally, like 20, 25 people. Um, 
millions of people are finding comfort in this system that serves a handful of people. Um, so we have to be willing. Um, if we want to gain it all, we have to be willing to risk it all. And that goes for everyone. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. This is just more of a quick aside, but I think um, I think the tension between like how much do you do as a white person, how much do you let other people lead is exactly what um, you said, Antoine, about telling someone's story, like who should be leading the telling of the story. And it kind of ties into what you said, um, the prompt of my question of like, who's at the top? of this process um, and are they representing a story they should be representing or are they kind of using other people in a way that doesn't They're make making sense? money from other people's stories right that's yeah, money important. comes in yeah. um and i just wanted to say i mean i think that's uh, i imagine a lot of that will be touched on and uncovered in the series that you're leading as it applies to the dance world because i think there's a lot i mean there's a lot of that in the dance world because we're telling stories um it, not because people are particularly mean and nasty, but we have the same systemic hierarchy in the dance world and a lot of the people at the top telling the stories. I mean, maybe they, you know, I think a lot of what we have to think about in dance is who's the right person to do this specific job, in addition to so many other questions of how we diversify the classroom and, and but really leadership um, and how things are flowing down. So I'm excited to like kind of uncover some of that as you go through your series about, about dance. Yes. Yeah. Hierarchy allows for comfortable and allows for it not to be messy. Mm -hmm. yes. And people yeah. are most scared of messiness, but like it has to be messy. You have to break down the hierarchy in order to create a whole new game. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes I think that, you know, if nothing changes, nothing changes. So you can have all these outbursts and you know, all these things and all these new, but, but if you're following the same hierarchical system, the same kind of institutional system, then you're really just um, putting lipstick on a pig, uh, so to speak. And mm -hmm. we have to be willing to kind of scramble all that up and, and start from a, a whole new place. Um, and I think that, you know, conversations like this is important, the questioning of it. You know, like really questioning, what is the sense of this? Um, because top-down approaches, top, we got to look at who we're, who, what are we judging by top? Is it more the most money, the most prestige? Like, what does top mean? Mm, and, and like, if we don't even question what that is, then, then we're still in the same system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with right. that. And, and I think it's good for us to define that too. Like you just said, what is the top and what is the bottom? And this is something that I've been exploring in a lot of my work. And I found that, you know, I've been having conversations and we'll think of any room. We'll think of a dance studio. We'll think of an office building. We'll think of a sports team. We'll think of any room you can think of and who's at the top and who's at the bottom. And then I would say 99.99999% of the time, white men are at the top and black femmes and the disabled are at the bottom. And I, I mean, we probably don't have time today, but I encourage all of our listeners to think of any situation you can think of, and more than likely that will be the power dynamic in that situation. Mm -hmm. And we have to acknowledge that. And like Devin was just saying, working from the top down, we actually have to work from the bottom up and work with our minority and marginalized communities. So where does that start? And I think that's a great place to start the work, to kind of go back to our question from earlier too.
Yeah, and recreating the language that there is even a bottom. Like this is even mm-hmm. bottom versus top. Yeah. 100%. You know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. interesting how we do get stuck in our language and that by virtue, like communicates a value system. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, I this I'm not sure if this question is going to come out clearly because it's not super clear in my mind, but I feel like Devin, your background as an athlete um, and obviously one who worked very hard and pursued it very intensely is very similar to where we're all coming from in the dance world. I mean, it takes the same kind of dedication and hard work and training and learning from others. Um, I'm not sure what it's like with the coaching relationship, but with the ballet master and ballet student relationship, it's very much almost in the old style school of tutelage where you're, you're teaching someone physically how to do this craft. And there's a lot that you have to learn and absorb from that person um, and those people. Um, I, th- I think I, like, I'm curious about your perspective on how, I, I, like, how do we break this down? Because we have to have the people who really understand the craft to teach it on the level, to get to the level that we all kind of reached in like the pursuit of this either dance or sport or whatever. And at the same time, we want to open it up and even ask ourselves whether there has to be a top and a bottom. How, how can we maybe think about approaching that in an activity yeah. that it takes such in-depth learning? Yeah. And, and so like, I always learned, like how I learned to become a great basketball player is I watched the great basketball players and mimic their moves. And oh. then finally I got my own voice. And the only difference between a master and a student is that the master, the true master knows that he's always a student. So the best mm-hmm. teachers, the best teachers are always the ones that, yes, I, I, I've accumulated this knowledge and I'm willing to share but the greatest teachers I know, the mass, the true masters are the ones that while they're teaching, they're still open to learning. It doesn't mean they dumb themselves down or, or their skill set and they don't teach how they're teaching in dance or in sports. But what they do is that that old school paradigm of leadership of do as I say, not as I do is played out. And they, they come from a leadership in, in regards to influence and how you can influence people is by 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 sharing and teaching, but also by listening. So I think that when you talk about mastery in, in, in um, dancing or in sports, the great teachers, the great masters are the ones who are able to articulate and share that with people and let them see something different about themselves, but also in the process being open from learning from the same person who's in front of you. It's the same thing in leadership. I had people who I've worked with who are, had the title of leader, CEO, but wasn't leaders at all. Mm-hmm. And, and how I look mm-hmm. at leaders is, do you treat the CEO the same as you treat the janitor? And for mm-hmm. me, that's where there's no top or bottom. It's a human connection. And it's like, I'm always willing to teach, but I'm always willing to learn. And mm-hmm. I think that's how, you, that's how I view that um, dynamic. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, And everyone has a role that matters, which is what I got from the last point you made. Um, And this is something, well, I think, I think it's important for us to understand, again, that a lot of this stems from white supremacy, the idea that there's one person at the front, and everyone in the back has to listen. 100 years ago, that's the same thing that was happening, this idea in our dance studios that we have to shut up and dance, and we're not allowed to ask questions and talk back. 
my ancestors were told to just shut up and dance. So this is a system that is continuing to show up. This old school paradigm is real old school and it's called white supremacy. Um, and I just want to tie that together. And I love what you said, in order to teach, you must learn. And in order to continuously teach, you must be continuously learning. And it's a process that's constantly happening. Um, yeah, so I love that, that there's, there doesn't always have to be a leader, but there can be a guide, right? That we're all learning and working together to get to a um, common goal or place. I like that word. I'm kind of trying to, as we speak, like put this into the context of like, uh, what I've experienced, which is a ballet class, high, ex extremely hierarchical, the way you describe Antoine. Um, but I, you know, it would have been interesting sometimes if I felt empowered when they gave me a correction to say, well, the reason I feel like that doesn't work for me is that this is how it feels when I try to do that in my body. And then you can have a conversation and actually get somewhere because it, it took years sometimes to realize like certain corrections I was getting, I just couldn't do and, and why and, and to find my own workarounds. So it actually could, even in our field that is very specific and technical, like it could have more conversation. And that would make them a better teacher if you started that yeah. conversation with them. Like, oh, some people with this type of turnout can't do this thing. You know, it's mm -hmm. um, an iterative teaching process. And yeah, and yeah. knowing the why and being able to articulate that. Why does my I have why do I have to be in 180 degree turnout there should be a good reason why right um, good point <laughs> right like I mean if you're a great why? teacher you'll be able to break all of this stuff down and like teach all of this yeah. stuff so I 100% agree but it also shows up in other things like I was taught that you I my question has to be earth shattering before I raise my hand and ask a question I need to think about it one two and three times before I even ask a question Oh, or yeah. like if we so have scary. to use the restroom, you have to ask yourself three times, do I really have to use the restroom? Like <laughs> these, the fact that someone has full ownership of us when we're in a room mm -hmm. is an issue, you know? And I think it's, it sounds crazy because we're not used to working in these types of ways, right? But if we look mm -hmm. at other cultures around the world, this isn't how everyone works. You have autonomy over your body. Um, so this is another way that I think this shows up. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would have loved if they had different classes for people with different levels of turnout and they didn't like <laughs> try to make it seem like you couldn't go anywhere if you didn't have the turnout but just like taught you towards a different direction or different style or maybe different path in the dance world because like I would have loved you know that <laughs> yeah. I don't have any turnout at and all. I know Devin you're, you're connecting with this a lot I know you've been working with your turnout and everything but no these are things <laughs> we talk about <laughs> No. And dance, yeah, like yeah. just to give you context. No, it's more <laughs> universal, and and yeah. like you know, I think it's it's a great conversation because you're not, you know, people put a lot of years into learning and 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 their craft and being able to teach it. So we're not, it's not an either or where we're trying to like not have them share their expertise, but can mm. we create a space where it's more collaborative? in that like we can really get mm -hmm. rather than just a concept but like real life how this impacts us and the questions we have so i love yeah. i love um i love this discussion because i think it's universal absolutely everything should be more iterative yeah. iterative <laughs> oh, is the you. word iterative mm -hmm. um well we sh probably should wrap up soon um i did want to ask um quickly just on the language front I I feel like a lot of people resist the word racist and want to say, well, I have inherent 
bias or implicit bias, but I'm not racist. But I also hear a lot of conversations very directly using the word, which makes a lot of sense to me because I feel like, um, I mean, I, I come at it by trying to relate by thinking, well, do I feel like someone is sexist if they're acting a certain way towards me? And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> um, and, you know, it wouldn't help to remove that word just because they feel bad about it, right? Where are we with racism right now? Should we be using that word? If you have implicit bias, you are racist, right? Is that how we're understanding it? Or what's the best way to use the word and understand the word? So I, I have no problem with the word racism. I think that mm -hmm. the question is an interesting question, right? Because mm -hmm. like, for instance, in one in my group, someone says, hey, do I go to a black person and call them black, African-American? You right, know, yeah. like it's a general question. And my answer is always ask them. Yeah. So, exactly. so you may be in a room with someone who like, ask the people who are with you in the room because there's no general way of going about and saying this is how we're doing it. See, oh, we're yeah. doing it is a generalization. And what we have to do is start getting on, on the human individual level and start seeing people as individuals rather than generalizations. Mm -hmm. So for me, if you ask me about racism or you know what, I, I, I would rather black than African-American, but you can go to someone else and they can say, you know, I like inherit bias. And, and, then, mm -hmm. and then ask the question, well, can you tell me more about that? And, mm -hmm. and now you're expanding your range of opportunities out here of, of, of what's here. And that's the experience of the black community. There's no mm -hmm. one way. We're, we're so diverse in many, in, in, mm -hmm. in all we do, that to kind of, for years, you've been, people have been trying to pin us into a box. Mm -hmm. And saying you gotta look like this, you gotta act like this, you gotta so so gotta I think like it, this. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. So I think to your question is it's always gonna be an inquiry, not a generalization. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And I can see how that ties in with whatever group you're with. Maybe you get on the same page about some of the terms and then you have a discussion. Correct. So that you can have the discussion. That's interesting. Yeah. And at the yeah. same time, we're all interrogating like why we use the language we use. Mm -hmm. yeah. And also making sure making sure that we distinguish between being uncomfortable and unsafe and that you know just like mm -hmm. Devin was saying earlier like some of these words make us feel uncomfortable but we relate them with making us feel unsafe and we have to really remember who's really unsafe in these situations so i'm going to do one diagram and i'm going to show yes. my artistic ability and then Let's i know go. Uh, it's <laughs> as you can yes. see i went to art school that's my circle circle right nice um, it's a perfect circle for those who can't thank see you, thank you. <laughs> Perfect canvas. That's right, on the perfect canvas. Mm -hmm. So this thing right here is called the comfort zone. Uh -huh. And when we talk about stretching out our comfort zone, most people think that we're going to this place. We think we're going to send people to the danger zone. Mm -hmm. but what which is further is, out. Is, which mm -hmm. is further out. But what, we, what I realized is if we can create a space and understand people, we're never going to take you to the danger zone. There's a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot between comfort zone and danger zone, which I call the learning zone. Mm -hmm. so you have to be uncomfortable. You got to get comfortable being uncomfortable, but you also have to create a space where people feel safe that they're not going to be in a danger zone. Yeah. And that's where the learning occurs. Yeah. 100%. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you guys, um, what else, is there anything else we need to touch on or haven't asked or haven't talked about from any of you before we wrap up? 
I just want to thank yeah. you guys. I want to acknowledge <laughs> you and your community. I think that what you're bringing to the dance community and, and your own communities is, is powerful. Um, and, and just keep the conversation going. You are the change. And it really, sometimes it feels very significant. Sometimes it feels like you may not be moving it the way you want. All I would just say is really keep doing what you're doing. And you all are inspiring in that way. So I want to thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. This is so inspiring yes. and we covered a lot. Yeah, thank you. Before yeah. we go, can everyone just smile and wave and I'm gonna take a screenshot. This is like if we were together, we'd take a selfie. Okay. I do not. Uh... All right, cool. Got it. <laughs> Thanks guys. It's our new way of yes. taking photos together. <laughs> yes. Choreographers out there, raise your hand if you could use more time, space, and money to create your work. Okay, don't take your hands off the wheel. Uh, they all took their hands off the wheel, Michael. I got, <laughs> I got Lays count two million hands and car crashes. The two million choreographers with cars in New York City? Yeah, right. That's where, <laughs> that's where we've gone wrong in the first place. Now, totally. we all know that the answer is every single choreographer out there could use more time, space, and money to create their work. So, enter the CUNY Dance Initiative, or CDI. CDI is a residency program that opens the doors of City University of New York campuses to professional choreographers across New York City's five boroughs. They can offer you free space to create, teach, and perform, as well as financial support. Now, CDI has already helped over 130 local artists right here in New York City launch new work, develop new audiences, and establish new relationships within the performing arts community. And you know what? You could be next. Actually, Michael, we've interviewed a ton of CDI resident choreographers over the years, I think uh, during your tenure and before. And I will say they're just always such innovators in the dance community and they're a really diverse collection of artists. Yeah, so many incredible choreographers. You and I had the chance to talk with Tiffany Mills last year. Mm -hmm. We'll never, of course, forget Jess's awesome interview with 2019 Bessie Award winner, tap dancer Caleb Teicher. And a while ago, we talked to Efrata Sherry, who's a B-girl and a house dancer. We talked to Annabella Lanzu, uh, Benny Royce Royan. We even got to interview the director of CUNY Dance Initiative, Alyssa Alpine. And you can find all of those interviews and more at potada.com, as well as potada on iTunes. Now, missing this once a year application to be a CDI resident is heartbreaking. So do not let it happen to you. Make sure you jump over to the website, cuny.edu slash dance initiative and join their email list. And check out the homepage for application alerts, insider ticket discounts, and so much more. And if you just love dance, make sure you follow at CDI underscore dance on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, back to the pod.